Just uh, a few things uh, I'd like to mention. Number one, kids, you're dismissed for Children's Church. Number two, Paul and Rachel will be sharing their last Sunday with us today. There's an opportunity for them in Colorado, and uh, they are going to Colorado uh, very, very soon, so this will be our last uh, Sunday with them. They are coming back in August where we're going to be able to say a proper goodbye, but uh, they're, they're going out to Colorado first, so we uh, definitely want to keep them in prayer. And then the third matter I would like to mention, we're trying something new, that's why I have all of these microphones on. Um, we're going to try and videotape, uh, well, that's an old term, isn't it, videotape? They're going to record. How's that? That's a little better. They're going to record messages, and we're going to put it on our website. So uh, the, the recording will be video and audio. So however you express that, you get the idea. I'm really dating myself with that videotape thing. Let's take our Bibles, and we will turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 32 through chapter 5, verse 11. And what we see in this text is oneness. We see the importance of sharing in one example and something to be avoided, selfishness and self-glory in another example. So as we come to this text, the main point that we want to see is this. God finds unity and oneness in the church body to be exceedingly important. You know, sometimes as believers, we forget just how important that is to the heart of God. We, in our culture, are individualistic. We think, as long as I'm kind of doing okay myself, what I do to connect with other people is kind of optional. It's sort of up to me, and I'll engage where I choose to, and I won't engage where I choose to, and I'll sort of be that island out there in the sea, and when I want people to come see me in their boats, that's okay, but for the most part, I like being that little island. The scripture talks about the importance of oneness, the importance about being, of, of being together with fellow believers and sharing things in common, having that fellowship, that unity that scripture so clearly calls for. And you know, that's what we find here in Acts chapter 4, verse 32 we find that the early church evidenced oneness in heart and mind. And that's brought out crystal clear right here when it says this, all the believers were one in heart and mind. Now this follows the context of a passage of Scripture that talked about coming persecution. And it talked about their view of God and the importance of seeing God as absolutely the one who is sovereign and in charge and in control and in unified prayer. They were asking God not to remove persecution from them, but to give them boldness and courage in its face. And then the passage ended with verse 31 where it says, And they prayed, and the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the Word of God boldly. You just get from this fourth chapter the idea of oneness. They're there together. They're facing opposition together. They're facing struggle together. Everything that they did had a purpose. And that purpose was, number one, to glorify God, but practically to glorify God by the way they treated one another. And you know there's an important lesson 
in this for us. God wants us to have oneness in heart and in mind. Isn't it amazing how quickly, how easily division comes in? Satan knows that if he can come in and spread seeds of of discord and division into any church body, it weakens it. It causes a church body to not have the strength to stand. And it causes us to turn on one another rather than turn to one another in times of need. God wants us to have that oneness. Now, Luke was writing to Greeks. We know this at the beginning of Acts, that he was sharing what he was sharing with them so that they could get an understanding of what God was doing in his church at Jerusalem, and then as it expanded into Greek provinces, they could understand what God is, who God is, the difference that he makes in our lives. And as we come to this text, we find that Luke was perhaps sharing with the Greeks something that they had formed as an idea. You see, in Greek society, there was this idea of a utopia. Many of the Greek philosophers would talk about a utopia where everybody got along, where friends took care of one another, and that was a goal that many of the Greek philosophers had. But here's the problem. On a human level, you can't pull it off. We're too driven by sin. We're too connected with the inappropriate. We can't do it in our own strength. But in the strength and the power of God, it's not only possible, it's probable. And what Luke is sharing with his readers is this. The utopia that you're seeking can only be found in Christ. It's found by people coming together, united in Him, in one heart and in one mind. God wants us to be people who think of other people's needs. When we go to the book of Philippians, we find the following statement. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness or compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Now, how do we achieve that? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others as better than yourselves. Each one of you should not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And you know what we find in that passage in Philippians is it goes on to give us the ultimate example of this, Jesus Christ. Christ is the ultimate example of one who cared for the concerns and the needs of others. So what was going on here in this church in Jerusalem, recorded by Luke here in the book of Acts, is a church that had oneness, a church that had unity, a church that came together in the truths of Jesus Christ and cared for one another. And you know, what we see about unity that is crystal clear to me as I study this passage is this. Unity will demonstrate itself in actions. We can all say, yeah, I really feel connected with my church. I really feel a part of this church body. But what we find is, if we're truly connected with our church body, it's not something that we just talk about. It's something that we demonstrate. Words should lead to actions. 
And that's what we find here, because look at what Luke says as we go on in that 32nd verse. Here was a church body that came together, and they embodied generosity and self-sacrifice. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything that they had. Now, this varies greatly with what we see in this world, doesn't it? Here are people who come together, and yes, they had possessions, but they looked at them and they said, you know what, these aren't mine to selfishly hold on to. These are mine to share with those who are in need. My possessions give me an opportunity to minister to others. In our world, often possessions are looked at as, hey, what's mine is mine, and I don't have quite enough of the things that are mine, so I need to add to them. I need to keep building things up more and more and more so that I can have more. Not so I can take the things that God has entrusted to me and use them as a blessing to other people, use them as a way of helping someone in need. It's mine to hold on to. It's mine to have. It's mine to build. And I build them for the sake of building them. And what's amazing is when you look at a life that's spent like that and a process that thinks like that, you have a person who may die with huge assets, but there are no U-Hauls behind hearses. You can't take it with you. So as a result, you've done nothing with it but build it, and then it goes kaput. When you're gone, it can be mismanaged, it can be unappreciated, can leave you and those around you empty. But what was going on here? They had possessions that they saw as an opportunity to invest in other people's lives. Now we need to understand something. Some have taken this passage and said, oh, see, this is an early form of communism. They're taking all of their stuff and they're giving it to other people, and that could not be further from the truth. In communism, things are confiscated and redistributed. In this passage, they chose to help others. They wanted to help others. They looked at having their possessions as an opportunity to have the resources to help others. That's what God wants us to do. John wrote in his epistle, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with action and truth. You see what John is saying? When we become aware of a need in a brother or sister in Christ, we aren't to look at them and say, oh, wow, that is really too bad. I hope things work out for you. Love you. See ya. Not the idea. We are to just look at them and say, oh, I I love you, I I hope things work out. We're to look and we're to say, you know what, I have the resources to help you, and this is a no-brainer. I don't have to think about this for half a second. If you need it, here, let me help you. Now, that can be our material resources. Sometimes it's just coming along somebody for support and encouragement. There are many ways that we can demonstrate this help for those who have need. Here they were talking about the material aspect, but I think that this principle can be expanded to mean any kind of help and support that a brother or sister in Christ has. 
This is what God calls a church that is one to do. And let me say this, I'm thankful for the way our church steps up. When we become aware of a need, and notice I emphasize when we become aware. You know, sometimes there are needs that people don't share and we haven't quite developed that being able to read minds thing yet in the church office. So sometimes people assume that we've heard that there's a need and it never gets to us. We don't hear it. And so people are hurt that we haven't responded. But you can't respond to something that you don't know. So here's a little clue, folks. In the church office, we would rather be told five or six or seven times than not at all. So if you call, we will thank you. And we will appreciate it. But here's the thing. We, as a church body, are good at stepping up, helping people, but nobody's perfect. We can excel even more in this. And that's my encouragement to us as a church body. Step up. When there's a person that has a need, you don't have to even go through the church in order to do it. You can dial direct. You can talk to the person. You can say, how can I help you? practically in this moment with the need that you have. God wants us to do that. God wants us to express that kind of love, that kind of concern. And that's exactly what was going on here in the book of Acts. They were sharing their possessions. They shared everything that they had according to that 32nd verse. But then we come to verse 33. This evidence of oneness in heart. Everyone had this oneness there were those who embodied generosity and self-sacrifice which showed the oneness. But then there was also a joint experience of the power and the grace of God. They experienced God's power and grace. Look at verse 33. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you remember, that great power that they had to share the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the core of the gospel, came because as a church body, they came together in the earlier verses and they prayed and they asked God to give them boldness to speak the gospel, God's word. And here, it's being experienced because as one, they came together and they sought the Lord. You know, something that our church body is trying to do through the course of this summer is offer more opportunity for us to come together and to pray together as a church body. In the bulletin, you'll find that there are opportunities for us to do that that are outlined for us. As a church, that's where the power comes from. These apostles shared the truth of God. And they were united by coming together on the core issues of doctrine, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But then another statement is made in this text. After it talks about the power that the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it goes on to say, and much grace was upon them all. You know, sometimes as Christians, we think in terms of grace only pertaining to our salvation. And I'm thankful for the grace of God and salvation because apart from God's grace, salvation would not be possible. But there are other ways that we can demonstrate grace. We can demonstrate grace to one another. If someone has offended me or hurt me, 
I can extend grace to that person. I don't have to look at them and nurture a grudge. I don't have to sit there and feel that, you know, we're just not together and that's the way it's always going to be because I'm mad at this person. I can look and I can extend them grace. And then another way that we experience grace is in our weakness. We experience the grace of God. We looked at a passage last week, and it so bears repeating that I want us to look at it again. Paul had an experience where he had a physical ailment of some sort. He asked God to remove it. And Jesus' response was, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. The power of God in grace, dispensing His grace to us moment by moment as we have need, that is an important part of God's grace that we can all experience. And I believe that that was a part of the much grace that was described here in the book of Acts. They were experiencing the work of God in their lives. This true grace was a part of their lives on a daily basis. The passage goes on to say, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That is how we experience the operative grace of God in our daily lives, a dependence on Him. And as we come together in unity, depending on the Lord, that's where we experience much grace as a congregation. Another way that they evidenced oneness in heart. They exhibited genuine concern and sacrifice for each other. Look at verses 34 and 35. There was no needy person among them, for from time to time those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had a need. Now you can tell a lot about how you feel about your resources by how willing you are to depart or part with them for the needs of others. Here is an example in the early church where there were people who had nothing. You see, when many came to Christ, they were excluded from their community. Their family rejected them. They were fired from their family business. As a result of their faith, they were left with nothing. But you know, the church is comprised of those who have need and those who can help. And it was true then and it's true now. So what happened? Somebody has some extra real estate that maybe they've had in the way of investment Maybe they've even inherited it and they don't have a need for it. And they see a need in someone else. So you know what they do? This person needs this more than me. I'm going to sell the proceeds that I get from this and I'm going to lay it at the apostles' feet and I'm going to let them take this and minister to others with the proceeds that I have. Now that takes a lot of faith. The world tells us, hang on to what you've got. Don't part with it. Save it for that rainy day. But what God is saying is, use it in the lives of others to bless them and to meet their needs. 
And that's exactly what these people were doing. They were taking the proceeds and they were helping people. And the church body was distributing it to those who had need. It's a wonderful picture of how people can minister to other people. And what we need to understand again is this. This was voluntary. No one came up to the people who had possession and said, you know, you really got more than you need. How about letting it go? It didn't happen. It was something that was agreed upon by the individual with God. And they brought it to worship him and to minister to the needs of others. It was a beautiful picture of charity, love, support, ministering to the needs of others. Well, we find some examples after this is mentioned, and that brings us to the next part of the passage, verses 36 and 37. It gives us an example that is an example we should follow. We should be like Barnabas, the encourager. Notice this says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, we had seen that there were individuals in the church that were doing this. Here, Luke gives us an example that would have been familiar to all of the early church, Barnabas. He's the same Barnabas that's mentioned, by the way, a little bit later in the book of Acts, who goes on a missionary journey with Paul. He's the same Barnabas who was actually there when the Apostle Paul first converted. If you remember, Paul had originally been Saul. And when Saul persecuted the church and then he converted to Christ, the church was a little leery. They looked and said, look, just changing the first letter of his name, not enough. We don't trust the guy. Remember what Barnabas did? He stepped up. He said, God has changed this man's life. Let's embrace him as a brother and let's support him. And that's what Barnabas did. Then there was another example of Barnabas showing encouragement. If you remember, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas were working together and they had gone on a missions trip. And one of the people that went along, John Mark, had an issue during the missions trip where he had to leave. When they went on their next missions trip, the Apostle Paul said, you know what? The dude wimped out on us. This is the Rob Wheeler updated version of the text. We don't want to take along somebody who, who doesn't have the stick to itness to hang in there and stay with us. So, not allowed. Can't come on the next one. Barnabas said, wait a minute. This guy has value. I see potential in him. So let's give him another chance. Let's work with him and let's see him develop into the kind of person that God can really use. Who was right? In a sense, maybe both of them were right. Paul had his work that he had to do. Barnabas had his work that he had to do. Barnabas was the encourager. And what we find Paul would later write in the last book that he wrote in the New Testament, bring John Mark along, for he's of great value to me. Barnabas, the encourager, was there to minister to the church body. He was there to give of himself. And he did it financially, and he did it as far as 
his own character and his own nature and his own time investment, all of those things, Barnabas is an example. An example of one who gives to others in the way that we should emulate. We should be like Barnabas. In fact, Luke says this about Barnabas in Acts chapter 11, verse 23. He says, when he, and this is referring to Barnabas, arrived and saw the grace of God, the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. So here is Barnabas, the encourager. He's the one that would come alongside people and encourage them along. So here's an example of one who showed that oneness, but unfortunately we have another example. Those who would extort what was promised to God, and that's the example of Ananias and Sapphira. This is the bad example. Notice chapter 5. Now some of you are probably looking, St. Pastor, You've taken a long time on 32 through 37. Oh my goodness, you're never going to get done because now we have 10, 11, 11 verses. Oh, you're never going to get through this. We're going to put it on turbocharge, all right? And we're going to look at what happens in this story. Ananias and Sapphira saw what happened with Barnabas. Look at this. Barnabas took his proceeds, gave it to the church, and everybody came around and said, oh, Barnabas, that's great. Man, we're so proud of you. This is wonderful. Look at what you did. And maybe they had seen a few other examples where people came up and they're slapping their backs, high-fiving them, telling them how good they are, what a wonderful thing they did. So what happens? Ananias and Sapphira look and they say, hey, given a little bit of land, brings that kind of recognition, I'm in. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to take that piece of property we've been sitting on. We're going to sell it. And then we're going to take the money and lay it at the apostles' feet. But when we sell it, this is good. We're going to keep a portion of what we sell for ourselves, but we'll let everybody think that the whole amount went to the Lord. We'll get the recognition and the money. The church will get some money. And everything's going to be perfect. It works for everybody. It's a win-win. That was their plan. And Luke brings this out so clearly as we look at this text. What had happened, many Bible scholars believe, is that perhaps they agreed to a certain amount. Or they agreed with the church to bring in the proceeds from what they sell and give the full amount. We don't know the arrangement, but what they did do was demonstrate deceit. Look at what it says. A man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. And with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. And then Peter said... Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? What happened? Ananias was concerned about self-glory. And there's also some other being that's very concerned about his own personal glory. 
You know who that is? Satan. So Satan took opportunity with Ananias. He tempted him. And Ananias swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. He decided to take the bait that Satan had put out for him and lie. You see, not only is Satan the master one at at, at pride, but he's also the master liar. He loves to lie. He rejoices in the lie. So that's what's going on here. Here, Ananias is responding to what Satan had filled his heart to do. And isn't it interesting, earlier in the fourth chapter, we saw that the church was filled with the Holy Spirit, but here, Ananias is filled or controlled by Satan. A great contrast between the two. And what he does is evil. He lies to the church body, but most importantly, he lies to the Holy Spirit. You see, a part that we forget about in the church body is we are not just an aggregate of individuals. There is a spiritual dynamic in God's church that we should not ever forget. And that is, as we come together, we're not only individuals, but we are all filled and indwelled by the Spirit of God. So, when I come to the church and I lie to the church, I'm not just lying to my fellow believers. I'm lying to the Holy Spirit. This casts something that is very serious. Sinning against God's fellowship of believers is sinning against God. And God takes it very personally when we do that. So this is what's going on with Ananias and Sapphira. They're lying, and there's something else that we find here in this verse that's essential for us to understand. Peter goes on to say, didn't the land belong to you, verse 4, before it was sold, and after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? And then he goes on in the fourth verse to say this, you have not lied to men, but to God. Now, earlier he said you lied to the Holy Spirit. Now in verse 4 he says you have lied to God. Essentially what Luke is doing is showing that the Holy Spirit is God. It's showing us the deity of the Holy Spirit. But what he's also saying to Ananias, and we don't want to get lost in this, is, look, those possessions were yours to manage as a steward. You could have done whatever you wanted with them. You could have kept the land and God wouldn't have held you accountable. You could have taken the proceeds and said, look, I'm giving you 75% of what I got for the land. That would have been his to do, and it would have been fine. Where was his sin? When he came in and said, I'm giving the proceeds from my land to the church, and lied about holding it back. It was the promotion of self. It was the self-glory. It was the decision to deceive that brought about his undoing. And then look at what we find. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. And then the young men came forward, wrapped his body, and carried him out and buried him. Self-glory, self-promotion. We look at it and say, well, that's just the way some people are. 
God looks at it and says, this is harmful to the church body. Lying, well, those little white lies that we tell, no big deal. God looks at it and says, you are lying to the Holy Spirit. We tend to minimize sin. God looks at sin and says, hey, sin is wrong. It's outside my moral boundaries. It's outside my character and my nature. It is an affront to my nature when you sin. When we do something to serve, God not only looks at what we do, but He looks at why we do it. Am I doing this to draw attention to myself, or am I doing this to honor God? Jesus said this in the Sermon on the Mount, When you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. We should not be people promoting ourselves. We're here to lift up the living God. But then the text goes on. And what we find as the text continues is the same thing happens with Sapphira. Look at verse 7. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? And they had already agreed together that they were going to deceive the church. She didn't know that Ananias had died. So she says, yes, that is the price. And look at verse 9. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Now why is this story put in the Scripture? There are two verses here that stand out as far as the response of the church. Look at verse 5. When Ananias died, verse 5, the second half of it says, great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then look at verse 11, when Sapphira died, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. God wants us to understand that sin is a serious matter to Him. We tend to minimize it, but not so with God. God was sending a message to the church that I will deal with sin. And sinning against the church body is a very serious sin that I'm going to deal with. You see, some Christians have the idea that, you know, I'm washed in the blood. I have a relationship with God. There are no consequences for my sin anymore, so I have carte blanche. I can go out there and do whatever I want to do, and everything's okay. Here's what we need to understand. God deals with sin. When we look at some of the possible outcomes for a sinning believer... Remember these three C's. I heard an evangelist share this when I was a kid, and I can't improve on it. It's, it's just a great way to remember the potential consequences that we can face 
when we sin. The first one is conviction. We've all felt those feelings of guilt when we've sinned. And you know what? God gives us those feelings of guilt and conviction to say, cut it out. Don't continue in that anymore. I can remember as a kid, there were times where I would do something and I would just wrestle all night with feelings of guilt until I would go and talk to my parents and talk to God about it and get this thing sorted out. God gives us those feelings. That's why we have a conscience. But listen, that conscience can become desensitized. If when God says, what you're doing is wrong, and I say, but I want to keep doing it, it's not that bad. Look at what this person over here does. I'm not a murderer, at least. So let's put it into perspective, God. It's not really hurting anyone. And we can sort of squelch the conviction that comes along. I kind of wonder if Ananias and Sapphira, when they first hatched the plan, I wonder if the Holy Spirit wasn't saying to them, guys, what are you doing? Don't follow this course. They resisted it. And when we resist conviction, that leads us to the second way that God can deal with our sin, and that's chastisement. Chastisement is an old word that very simply means discipline. The scripture says this, my son, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, do not make the Lord's, or do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons, for what son is not disciplined by his father? God loves us enough to say, I'm not going to allow you to continue that course of action. So he will bring disciplines into our lives. Now, what I've found most often is the discipline that God brings into our lives are often the natural consequences of what we've done. If I've been gossiping, God will break relationships, and I have to suffer the loss of a relationship. If I cheated on my income tax... I get found out. You know, I have Christians all the time who will come to me and say, Pastor, I can't get away with anything. Every time I do something, it's like all these terrible things come into my life and other people get away with this stuff and I can't seem to get away with it. And you know what I say? Thank God you're a child of God because he's disciplining you. God disciplines his own children. When I'm in a grocery store, if I see somebody else's kids misbehaving, I don't go over and pick them up and swat them on the backside. They're not my kid. But when my kids did, I would say, cut it out. And I would discipline them if they chose not to listen. God does that with us. So the idea that a person can be a follower of God, a child of God, and never experience any consequences, absolutely wrong. We experience conviction, we experience chastisement, and then we experience the third C, and that is, got to keep our C's, the coffin. There is actually a sin that leads to death. Scripture says this in 1 John 5, 16, if anyone sees a brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray, and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. 
And I'm not saying that any should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is a sin that does not lead to death. Now, what is he saying? The example of Ananias and Sapphira is a sin that led to death. God chose to take them out for the sin that they committed. Now, let me be very quick to say this. Just because a person dies early, it doesn't mean they've committed the sin that leads to death. Don't make that assumption. But understand that it is God's prerogative. God can look and God can say, you know, the course that you're following is so heinous and you are going down that path so far that I'm going to stop you. You haven't listened to my conviction. You haven't listened to my chastisement. So I'm taking you home early. I don't know whether Ananias and Sapphira were believers. It's not mentioned. But I suspect that they probably were. Because I've seen believers do worse things than Ananias and Sapphira in my book and live right through it. It was an example. And what God used that for was a reminder to the church body that, folks, God takes sin serious, especially when it's a sin against his church body and it damages and it hurts fellow believers. God was holding them accountable. Oneness is essential to God. God wants us to see, to, to, to be people who who love one another with one mind, one heart, working together for God's purpose. God wants us to experience the power of Christian community, and He wants us to experience the grace that we can extend to one another and experience from God. But listen, God also wants us to understand the importance of obedience. You see, where we have a church community and there are some who say, yes, I'm going to live for God and then there's others who choose to live the opposite, it's hard to maintain that unity and that oneness. God wants a church that functions together in service to Him. Now, I'm not sharing this message to try and scare people into living straight and all of that. That's between you and God. I don't know what goes on in your lives. I see you here at church, and you're all wonderful people here at church. I look and I say, wow, I have a great congregation. What happens between you and God, though, you know. And so what God is saying is, be serious about your relationship with me and about the sin that's in your life, because I am. Understand the importance of living your commitment. And I believe as a church body, as we live that commitment together, we will see God do great things in our midst. We can see God work. And isn't that what we all want to see? God working in a special and unique way in this church body. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.